Good morning, everyone. I want you to turn in your uh, Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. And we're going to begin in verse 16 this morning. John 16. And we're going to begin in verse 16. Let's read together. Jesus went on to say, and by the way, just as an aside, this is the last section of the farewell discourse that began uh, back in chapter 14 that is going to end with the prayer in John chapter 17 that James will cover next Sunday. So this is the last section of teaching prior to the prayer of Christ for his disciples. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And that's this cryptic statement from Christ about his death, departure for three days, and resurrection. That kind of helps to set the tone of this. And since the disciples are on the other side of the cross, that is a truth for them that is perplexing and difficult to grasp. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me because I'm going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. So there were aspects of the cross work of Christ that were, in a sense, hidden from their eyes still. You and I have the perspective of being able to look back on the cross of Christ and understand exactly what Jesus means. All right, any early reader of New Testament scripture would have understood exactly what Jesus was referring to, that the cross of Christ was followed by the resurrection of resurrection of Christ, and that the little while was the three days between the cross work and the resurrection of our Savior. Now, I believe that the the main aim of this passage of Scripture is found right in the middle of it. If you look at verse 24, you'll see this, what I believe is the aim of this text. The Bible says, until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive so that your joy is will be complete. I believe that the aim of this text is that the joy of the believer would be complete and that they would experience in their relationship with Christ a deep and personal, profound sense of peace. What Jesus has spoken about thus far in John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15, is the idea that the Holy Spirit would come, he would convict and reveal the fullness of the work of Christ. That's the ministry of the Spirit to convict people of their need for Christ, and then to make known for them the fullness of Christ's work, which saves and redeems, brings people into a relationship with God. In 16 to 18, he begins a new discussion that raises questions in the minds of the disciples. Jesus senses their confusion and begins to answer that. He sees that they're puzzled. They're nervous to ask. And so what happens is they walk along as Jesus is teaching them. They're dialoguing amongst themselves saying, what does he mean? We don't understand. Verse 19, Jesus saw, and I just love the the, the sensitivity of Christ to them. He lets them go on in question, but then he intervenes. He saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. So 
Here's what Jesus says to them. He says, you're going to experience a season of weeping and sorrow that will turn to or lead to an ultimate and greater joy. So the, the, the sense is this, this, this looming crisis of the cross has now moved in direct proximity to the disciples' experience personally. Christ has come uh, through this farewell discourse. He is explaining for his disciples the fullness of the purpose of the cross. He's explained it in detail in the past, that the Son of Man must be crucified, be buried, and in three days rise again. For the disciples, they weren't like, oh, okay, we understand that. For them, that was always what for us looks clear because we had the perspective of looking back them looking forward, they had no category for resurrection. They, they had no way to grasp what Christ was saying. And so it, it always left them kind of nonplussed. They were perplexed by that statement from Christ. And so Jesus senses that and begins to speak with greater clarity. In fact, I, I think you can understand how much the disciples struggled with Jesus talking about the crucifixion and rising in three days. You remember when Jesus said this to disciples earlier on, Peter responded by saying this, Lord, I'll die before you die over my dead body. I won't let it happen. Why is Peter so strong in his statement to Christ? It's because this idea of conquering death, this idea of victors over death is not a concept that is known to them yet. And so Jesus is going to kind of massage them along, bring them along. Now, in this statement, he says in, a, in, a, in, a, in verse 20, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. That is a cryptic reference to what happens at the crucifixion. Okay, so you have a, a system, and the idea for the world here is not the world geographically. It's not the world in the sense of all people. It's the world speaking about the system organized against the purposes of God that is manifested through particular individuals. And so the world that will rejoice is the world that is glad that the Son of God has been terminated. All right? It is the world that is happy about the circumstance that has come about. But here's what Jesus is going to say, verse 20. He says, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, and this is this, as you think back to the experience of the disciples, as Christ is crucified and put in the grave, they are overcome with grief. When Jesus says this, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy, which is to say what? It's to say that the world's celebration of the death of Christ is a premature celebration. They don't yet know the resurrection power of Christ that is about to be revealed. Now, verse 22 and or verse uh, 21, I'm sorry. Verse 21 gives us an illustration that helps us to gain perspective for the disciples on this experience of suffering and pain. Okay, and the illustration that he uses is the illustration of childbirth. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. Okay, so when the time for the birthing of the child comes, there is an acute sense, pang, experience of pain that it comes about. Now, here's the way Jesus uses the illustration. But when her baby is born, 
the outcome of that pain. She forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the experience of the disciples, their grief leading to joy is tantamount to or like the experience of a woman going into labor, giving birth to a child, and the birth of that child, this is the words of Christ, ladies, erases the memory of the pain because of the joy that a child has come into the world. Okay, so that's the, that's the nature of the picture. And I think what Jesus is describing for us here is a typical customary birth, okay? Do we realize that there are circumstances in which the pain of the birth is so dramatic that it cannot be forgotten? The answer is absolutely yes, okay? But in the normative process, my experience as a pastor in, in greeting folks that have, uh, uh, ladies that have had the privilege of giving birth to a child, my experience that is that very few of them want to spend a lot of time talking about the experience of the birth. They'll talk that over with their lady friends, okay? But what they are usually caught up with is the joy of the new child that has been born. And what Jesus wants his disciples to understand is that they are going to enter into a deep period of suffering and struggle. And folks, isn't this true in most of our lives as believers in the journey that we experience? That we pass through seasons of great difficulty that yield to and are in many ways the cause of a deeper and greater joy. And so it is, Jesus illustrates this. In verse 22, he says, So with you, or in the same way, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away. And what is Jesus doing for the disciples? He's, he's giving them a clarification that now they are in sorrow. They're grieving as this crisis of, the, crisis of the cross looms. They have a sense in their hearts as they listen to Jesus that things are about to change dramatically in a way that they have never experienced. And it causes them confusion. And they're asking questions. And Jesus seeks to bring them comfort and encouragement. What he wants them to know is that the joy that he is going to produce in their lives, no one can take away. Now, folks, there are many things in our lives that threaten the peace of God and the joy of God in our hearts. Here's what Jesus wants you to know. The joy that he gives, no human circumstance can ever annihilate. Will it threaten it? Will it obscure it? The answer is absolutely just like the crucifixion of Christ does for the disciples. It, it, it blinds them. It, it causes them to struggle deeply. Most of them do something dramatic. They depart. They go into hiding out of absolute, deep, and profound fear. What Jesus wants them to know is that there is a joy that comes to the people of God that is permanent, that cannot be taken away, and should be characteristic of the Christian's experience in their daily life. Now, can we be honest with one another and say that often in our Christian experience, that experience of indelible joy is often lost and obscured by our circumstances. And I think what this text is going to do, it is going to argue from three perspectives, uh, <clears throat> things to remind us of how our joy in Christ can in fact be sustained and known as permanent joy from God. And verse 23, I think, helps us to understand this. 
Jesus says, in that day, after the resurrection, after you know the fullness of my work, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. And the idea is for anything, okay? He says, very truly, I tell you, my father will give whatever you ask in my name until you, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be made complete. So here's the first principle, I think, that will encourage the permanent joy to come into focus for us as believers. It is knowing that we, through Christ, have ready access to prayer answering power. This is a profound promise that Christ gives to his disciples. Until now you have not asked anything. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be made complete. In the new era of the Spirit's indwelling believers, he will prompt us to pray. We ask in Christ's new name on the basis of his saving work as our savior, as our redeemer, as our high priest, as our advocate, he establishes our status with God as father. And so knowing that we have access to God to ask for great things from him is something that for believers should sustain great joy. We know that we go through seasons of need. But what God wants us to remember is that in the midst of those needs, we have direct access to God in the name of Christ, which is to say what? It is to say that we have his undivided attention as Father. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, talks about this access that is provided by Christ. Here's what the writer says. He says, since we have such a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, resurrected, risen, exalted Lord. Let us hold firmly and joyfully to the faith we possess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with their weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, with joy, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time. Of need. Folks, I think one of the things that for us as Christians should prompt and sustain an understanding of the permanent joy that comes via the Holy Spirit is an understanding that as we face needs, we have immediate access to Father. That as we face difficult circumstances, we can fall to our knees and seek God's help and encouragement. I think one of the things that this text is making clear is that the way to God is not religion. It's not moralism. It is the crucified, risen, and exalted Christ. We come in his name and on the authority of his resurrection. And here's what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven. Now, what is Jesus saying to his disciples? As you pray in my name, you have the privilege of immediate access to the creator of the universe and the world. And that, I believe, for us as Christians should fill us with a sustainable and strong joy. Jesus says, ask and you will receive, verse 24, and your joy will become complete. So that as we go to Father in prayer and as we access the rights of sonship before our Heavenly Father and daughtership before our Heavenly Father, there is this wonderful sense that I have the privilege of coming before the Creator with the needs that I have. That should encourage my heart in a deep and profound way. 
One writer said it this way. He said, prayer is our privileged response to the Father's limitless resources made available by his Son, our Savior. And I, I would argue this. I would argue that this text promises answers to prayer in the context of fulfilling our God-given mission. I believe that's the focus of this prayer, that as we go out as the disciples were sent into a world where the Spirit precedes them and convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, as that is happening, we're asking Father to empower witness and to bring joy to us so that we find effectiveness in our purpose. Jesus says, come in my name. And you will find joy. So we, we, we find joy encouraged by knowing that we have ready access to prayer answering power. Number two, we find joy in knowing that we are objects of the Father's paternal affections. And what you're going to find Jesus does is he talks about prayer and, 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 and this idea that we have immediate access into the presence of God and we can find answers to prayer that fills with joy. He's going to go back and somewhat restate that in another way. Verse 26, or 25, he says, Though I have been speaking to you figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but I will tell you plainly about my Father. That is, I will give you greater insight into the Father's relationship with you. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So it's interesting. Jesus, beside the Father, acts as the one who gives us access, but he does not act as the one who prays for us. Okay? Now follow what I'm saying. There is, through Christ, an immediate access to Father so that we make our request to our Heavenly Father. That's the emphasis of this text. There's a change in the nature of the relationship because of the cross work of Christ. We have now bold access directly into Father's presence. Why is that important? I think Jesus gives us clarification on that. He says, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No. Verse 27, the Father himself emphatically... Not just Father, but Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that it came from God. So here's what Jesus wants you to know. If you believe in Christ, if you have faith in his name, he wants you to know that you are an object of the Father's affections. Okay, that is a beautiful and glorious truth. He wants us to know that the Father has a paternal predisposition, an affectionate posture based on a new relationship by virtue of the cross work of Christ. We are forgiven. We are born anew as sons and daughters of God and have access where we, by we can say, our Father who art in heaven. And Jesus says, I want you to think in this way because I want you to know that the Father loves you. We sing a song in our church. It says this. It says, by this we know love that he laid down his life. God's very own son came from heaven to die. Suspended he hung as he shed his own blood. What grace in his pardon, by this we know love. Folks, we know the love of God because it is manifested in the person of Christ, his son whom he sent. The son gains for us through his cross work access into our father's presence. And it is there that we begin to experience something that is absolutely glorious and beautiful. As I thought about this idea of paternal affection, I thought of uh, my cell phone. I thought, 
of times when my phone rings during the day, okay? Uh, I don't always answer my phone when it rings during the day, okay? But there are certain phone calls that when I get them, I am predisposed via relationship to want to and to almost in some sense have to answer that call. All right, that call can come from my wife because of our marriage relationship. It also can come from our three girls. Okay, I, I am more inclined, breaking news, okay, I'm more inclined to answer the phone when my daughters call me than when you call me. Okay, each name evokes certain concerns or questions. Okay, when they call, there is a, in my heart, there is a predisposition, there is an affection for them that causes me to want to answer. I answer because of relationship. That relationship gives me responsibility for them. Folks, do you understand? That is how Father explains through the Son his relationship with us. He has a predisposition when we come in Jesus' name to give prayer-answering power to those he loves. That should blow your mind. And it should drive you into his presence. As a dad, I naturally want to assist our daughters. I'm offended if they have a need that I could meet and they don't ask me. Why? Because I am at the ready. I am predisposed to take from our resources as a husband and wife to meet their needs. We count that as a privilege to be part of their lives. And when there is a genuine need that they can't meet, to say, yeah, we would love to help you out as best we can. Father in heaven has limitless resources. And he calls us and he asks us to come. And the reason we come is he loves you. Here's what Jesus wants you to know this morning. Father, because of the cross, is predisposed to love you. Because through the cross, you have become sons and daughters of God. And when you cry out, there is a father's ear listening. Dads, can I say this to you this morning? The first understanding of God as father that your child will have comes from you. Your love for your children, your predisposed affection to meet their needs and care for them should be the first sight of God's love that your children have. And when they come into a relationship with God, that relationship that they had with you should inform their relationship with God. And I understand sitting in this group right now, here today, there are many that when you think of Father in your life, You have to say, you know what? That's not a pleasant affection for me. It's not a pleasant memory. Here's what I want you to know. The psalm says that God is the father of the fatherless. I believe there are a lot of people who have a dad but don't have a father. They don't know that affection. They say, Tim, what do I do about that? You flee into the arms of Christ who will teach you by the Spirit about the Father's love. You know what Jesus says? He says, I encourage you to come into Father's presence. I encourage you to pray, asking for prayer, answering power, so that you will know in that setting the affection and love and predisposition predisposition of God for your behalf. There's power in the name of Christ when we pray. And I believe the power of this for a child is transformational. And on this Father's Day, just as an aside, not as planned, May God help us to be like our Father in heaven. May we be loving and affectionate and caring. And may that affection strengthen and bring confidence to those who are put into our care. 
Nothing grows our joy like a deepening awareness of the Father's love. Joy in Christian life is fostered by our pursuit of the Father in prayer, more asking, more receiving, more trusting, more joy for His glory. John Newton said this in song about prayer. He said, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. Folks, do you understand this? There is no need that you face that the limitless love and power of God cannot address. None. None. His grace and power and love are such that none can ever ask too much. Can I encourage you this morning to foster joy with God by rushing into his presence? And then the last thought that emerges is this. Verse 29. Then the disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need for anyone to ask you questions. This makes us believe that you come from God. And I think for the disciples, there's a bit of an irony to what they're saying. Do they get it fully? The answer is no. What are they saying? Because they're still going to have questions. What are they saying? We're, we're starting to get it. We'd like to know the fullness of what you promised, but we're, we're still a little perplexed. And so what Jesus says to them, with a touch of irony, I believe, verse 29, Jesus then said to his disciples, or, or I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 31, sorry. Jesus says, do you finally believe? Okay, that's just like, uh, okay. And, and, and I think all of us can probably relate to that from Christ and say, you know what, I've probably deserved that from Christ with the... A touch of irony, he says, okay, now you finally believe. Really? Verse 32. A time is coming, and it has in fact now come when you will be scattered. Each to your own home, you will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And there is that picture of affection. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So here's the third key, I think, that, that will prompt joy in our hearts as believers. It is remembering that Christ is our victor. You know, I often don't feel uh, victorious in my life. Uh, I have seasons where things are good, and then I'm, I'm probably normal. I have seasons where I'm, I'm struggling with the circumstances showed up on the radar of my life. Something pops up on the screen any given day, and it it causes our joy to fade a little bit. Here's something that will encourage joy in Christ. Verse 32, Jesus says, A time is coming and has now come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. So what is he saying? There is in the immediate for the disciples, and in this case, how far away is the crisis of the cross? It's literally hours. And so Jesus can say, the crisis you're going to face is right at the door. And here's what he says to them. And I just, I love this affectionate insight of Christ and from Christ. He looks at them and he says, you're going to be scattered. It's an image of sheep who lose their shepherd. You're going to be scattered, each to your own home. That is, you're going to leave me alone. 
folks, this is what happens to the disciples. They, they feel up to the moment, and then there's a sense in which they certainly are not up to the moment. And so as Christ moves towards the crucifixion, Jesus says, you will be scattered. And that Jesus, in that case, the scattering of the disciples, is speaking of the cross as the scattering instrument would be clear to every person that would read this text in the early church. They would know what it meant that the disciples left him and fled. They scattered. They dispersed. Each to his own home. And the idea there is that they were going to go back to their old way of life. They, they, they were so broken by the crisis. They, they, they didn't know how to respond appropriately and properly. And so in fear and, 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 and anxiety, they, they flee from the scene. Fascinatingly, we find that Peter tries to hang on, right? As the crisis hits and pummels, Peter tries to stay there, but he finds himself denying Christ three times and finally scattering. At the end of the day, who do you find? You find John, the love disciple, given uh, over to Mary to be his caretaker as Christ, the son of Mary, passes away. So apart from them, everybody else leaves, scatters. They, They flee the scene and go to their own place. Here's, here's what's amazing to me, and hopefully this will bring a sense of encouragement to your joy. Jesus anticipated and knew that the disciples would flee him, that they would fail him, that they would deny him, and still he loved them. He looks beyond their failure to their restoration. One writer said it this way. He said, it is comforting that the whole band of disciples was made up of people just like us. Quick to think we understand when in truth we have a long way to go, but he is so incredibly patient with us. And I, I just, I love that Jesus is clear about their failure and encouraging about their future. Verse 33, I have told you these things, you disciples, about your failures, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. And it's just about to hit a crisis moment for them. And what is Jesus doing? He is preparing his disciples for the inevitable crisis that is coming that's going to blow them out of the water. And then he's going to talk strongly about his intent to bring restoration. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart or be courageous. I have overcome the world. This is the one, of mo- one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. I have overcome the world. Meaning, as you see me move into death, know that I will, out of that grave, rise a victor. And I, I want you to think about this text, this glorious truth, very carefully. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. These things about my death, so that in me you may have peace, because in this world you will have trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. The idea of the word overcome, it comes from the Greek word Nike, to be a conqueror. That's why those athletic shoes have that name, okay? Uh, Jesus is the victor, and the word is in the verb tense that indicates this idea of a, of a, of a fait complete, of a sustained victory, of an accomplished fact that has an abiding result. So as Jesus moves towards the cross, what does he want the disciples to know? He wants them to know that in the middle of that crisis, I am 
victorious with the abiding result that you will be sustained. He ever lives, the book of Hebrews says, to make intercession for us. Now, after that, then he says, be of good cheer. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, why does Jesus say that to his disciples? He wants them to know that the victory that belongs to the master belongs to his followers. Okay, does that make sense? The victory that is Christ belongs to and is for his followers. So what he's communicating to them, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, and therefore so will you. And that should be for us a deep sense of joy and encouragement. In spite of how dark the night, in spite of how heavy the pressure, how painful the ordeal that you're experiencing, and how spectacular your failure, I have conquered the world, and my victory is yours. His resurrection guarantees mine. That is why this entire discussion began in John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. James preached on the text, John 14, 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 1 John 4, 4, I think, is John's interpretation of this later. He says, you belong to God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Are there circumstances that get us down at times, that cause us to drift and sink at times? The answer is absolutely yes. We all face them. What Jesus wants his disciples is to remember is is a truth very similar to what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, God is the lifter of my countenance. He's the one who comes along and says, come on, cheer up. What is he doing? He's reminding us that he is sustaining infinite power that is available for us because out of his affection, he sees us as his sons and daughters and is predisposed to meet our needs. Now, this idea of Christ as victor, I believe is a truth that is to be treasured in our hearts. I think Jesus is loading this up on the hearts of the disciples so that when they go into the season of being away from him for a little while prior to the resurrection, they'll meditate on these thoughts. I believe this truth is treasured. It is not the stuff of placards and t-shirts. It is the precious truth that should adorn the heart of the victor in Christ. It informs us in our struggle. The resurrection event, when comprehended, is so overwhelming and assuring that the pains of temporary persecution, suffering, and even the face of death is lost in the light of his victory in the resurrection. And what it does is it turns to confident, unspeakable, and unquenchable joy. You may remember the text that refers to the resurrection of Christ in John chapter 20. It says on the first day of the week when the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. And here's the the statement. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, weak, afraid, failing, frail. I'm sending you. Those that were three days before denying and scattering, huddled for fear, meditating on the crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ will change your view of trouble. 
May God help us as we face difficult circumstances to meditate on the truth of his affection for us, of his relationship with us, and of the fact that Jesus Christ is victor. In conclusion, let me say this as an application. God uses weak but willing vessels. And in this text, Jesus is trying to encourage the disciples. His aim is to give them joy and deep peace. This text reminds us that the building of the church and the filling of a new building is ultimately, is ultimately not up to us, but the Christ, the victor. Leah Morris said it this way. The church depends ultimately on what God has done in Christ, not on the courage and wit of its members. I find that encouraging. That gives me hope that God, in his mercy and grace, can do something wonderful and power through people that make up the chapel of Warren Valley. Because as we study this text, there is a sense in which, looking at disciples, I feel like I'm looking in the mirror. And as I hear the words of Christ and realize how much it brought joy to the hearts of the disciples. So the words of Christ, his promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why is that true? It's true because Christ is victor over even the gates of death and hell. And folks, if he can handle that, then there is no circumstance in my life that the power of God cannot change and use for his glory. Dads today, show your children the affection of our Father in heaven. And for every Christian here this morning, I say this to you. Let, let us depend on the victory of Christ and let us depend on the love of the Father which gives us access to all that we need to be better than we are on our own. That is the work of God and His desire for us in the church. Father, this morning, we are grateful for Your Word which deeply encourages our hearts. Jesus, we thank you that you see us in our weaknesses and you aim to address us in that setting. And, and the purpose of all that you're doing is so that our joy may be complete and that we may have peace in you as we seek to complete the work that you have given us as the church to do. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would find us faithful as servants to the King of Kings. Thank you, Lord, for your crucifixion. Thank you for your resurrection. And thank you for your promise to return again soon in a little while. And we know, Lord, based on that promise, that one day our sorrow will turn to and lead to a great abiding and abundant joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.